heavily, I'm a clown. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Bitcoin Echo Chamber, the show about Bitcoin and Bitcoin free-range chickens. Going to be doing something a little bit different today. I have Ben joining me as a co-host to interview Robert Breedlove. Robert is someone that you might have seen some of his writings floating around on Twitter or Medium. Robert is criminally underrated, in my opinion, so Ben and I got together with him to discuss... Uh, his newest piece of writing, which is going to be dropping sometime today. I'll put that down in the show notes so you guys can either uh, read that first if it's already out, and if you can find it in the show notes, that means it's already been published, or if you're an early bird and you're listening to this right after it gets released, you might have to wait a little bit till it comes out on Twitter and gets uh, posted in the show notes after the fact. Don't sleep on Robert's work if you haven't read any of it yet. It's all fantastic. But that's all I got. Let's get to it. This episode of the Bitcoin Echo Chamber podcast is sponsored by WTFHappenedIn1971.com. The economics meme taking the world by storm where all of us are trying to find out the answer to what the heck happened in 1971. WTF1971 also has a merch store now. You can find it at WTF-1971.creator-spring.com. I'll post a link to that down in the show notes if you want to check it out. Thanks for the support. Robert, how's it going, man? Good, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, so today actually is a, a three for one. We have uh, Ben Prentice is joining us today and our special guest, Robert Breedlove, who you guys may have heard of. He has some pretty interesting writings out there. Uh, Robert, uh, so from what you've shared with Ben and I, you're working on this new piece and it's pretty compelling. Do you want to tell the audience a little bit about it? Uh, yeah, so it's... But, you know, as we were just talking about, it's in a sort of rough form now. But I, in trying to convey what Bitcoin is to people and like how profound uh, of an invention it is, I've drawn an analogy to uh, basically saying that the invention of Bitcoin led us to the discovery of absolute scarcity for money, meaning that it's money that cannot be reproduced. It's the only commodity in the history of the world that is, uh, no matter how much time and effort we allocate towards it, you cannot produce any more Bitcoin, right? It's an absolutely fixed supply of 21 million units, as most people know. Um, that is paramount to its value proposition, right? It's uninflatable money. It's like the ultimate liquid hedge against um, infinitely reproducible fiat currency. And so, in trying to convey how big of a deal that is, I, I drew an analogy to the invention of Bitcoin and the invention of the number zero, which um, for many centuries we didn't have. Um, and probably the most uh, common uh, conception of that are Roman numerals. People are familiar with Roman numerals, but Roman numerals actually didn't have a number zero. And it turns out that was intimately connected to their philosophical view of the world um, and, and the church's power in the world. That's crazy, man. Um, so like the, the concept of zero, um, is, you know, we think of it as nothing, but, um, yeah. uh, you know, after reading your piece, zero is, is more than just nothing. Uh, in fact, you, you know, elucidate a few different, um, examples of that, but, you know, as you were just talking about, you said the numbers, it, 
the number systems we used previously, like the Roman numeral system, didn't even have zero. Um, so uh, I, I was wondering if you could get into, you know, why you claim that without zero, you know, there was an increased cost of calculation of those number systems. <clears throat> yeah, sure. So, so one of the first number systems I looked at was uh, Babylonian cuneiform. And it was this, you know, we have a base 10 number system, but Babylonian cuneiform was a base 60, and they did not have the number zero. So, and there's a picture of it in my piece that it's all these little uh, funnel looking devices. They sort of count one, two, three, four through 10, and then 10 has its own special mark. Um, and then it cycles through where basically one through 60, each has its own unique character. But, uh, what this does is sort of makes the whole number system very inefficient. Not, not only in terms of counting, but once you try to do arithmetic, you know, addition, subtraction, multiplication, division, it becomes very unwieldy very fast. Um, and this is a similar thing with Roman numerals where you had to, especially with multiplication and division, you had to build out these huge tables just to figure out um, any calculated value with Roman numerals. So one of the power, the powerful things about zero is that it serves as a placeholder. So depending on its position in a number, you know, if you have the number 102, for instance, that basically represents nothingness at the tens place or the tens order of magnitude. And by giving uh, a number that value, it allows us to recycle the, the integers one through nine for different purposes. So we can have 102, we can have 1102, we can have 11,002. Um, and zero just serves as this essentially placeholder. Um, and then with that structure, we can perform calculation much more efficiently, like, like we learned in school, right? Um, and it's, it's a bit easier to see this visually, uh, which I'll include some things in the piece, but you know, if you just think of 32 times eight, you just kind of do you know eight times two and eight times three and you get your number. But if you try to do that in Roman numerals, it gets very complicated. Um, so zero is just basically a, a huge efficiency gain for for numbers for number systems. Yeah, and you went you so, went on to talk about how like essentially the, you know the, the the societies that are were using the um, the number systems that had had invented zero uh, eventually kind of won out economically over the the inefficient yeah. Roman numeral systems. Um, yeah. Yeah, it was. Uh, I, I forget the quote where it's like nothing. Uh, there is nothing more powerful than an idea whose time has come, right? And so zero as a number represented absolute nothingness, right? Uh, the ancient Indians had a name for this. Sonyuta, I believe, was a philosophical concept of the void. Um, kind of this primordial nothingness that everything came from, right? Which uh, now in modern astrophysics, we kind of look at the Big Bang as the same thing, right? It was this... Big Bang that came from nothing. There was no time, no space before the Big Bang. And so this concept did not really exist before. The earliest discovered zero was in ancient India uh, and ancient Cambodia. Around somewhere between the 4th and 7th centuries, they started using this dot as kind of a, a zero placeholder. And, um, you know, from that, they could just more efficiently perform calculation, which allowed them to outcompete um, others in trade. So like in banking, finance, uh, mercantilism, it all, it allowed them to do, uh, execute trades, negotiate trades, calculate things quicker, better, easier. 
So over time, the concept of zero just spread. Um, and yeah, it just, again, it's sort of economically outcompeted Roman numerals and other inferior number systems. So I know you basically have said that the, the discovery of zero was so revolutionary that it made its adoption inevitable. Um, and, and I try to put myself in the shoes of these people that were using like Babylonian cuneiform or uh, Roman numerals. And I try to imagine what it would be like to have used that system my whole life for all of my calculations and then have this new... Uh, completely foreign concept come along that I'm exposed to and I think well that'll never work that doesn't make any sense um, why would I stop using what I'm using now it's working perfectly fine um, but but you you argue that the gravity of a discovery like zero and a way in which it can be conceptualized on paper makes it, it's so revolutionary that it's its adoption is inevitable yeah I think you know, when it comes to tools, the entire purpose of a tool is to just allow you to achieve greater results with the same amount of effort, right? To just amplify uh, your returns on time spent or increase your productivity. So in that sense, zero can just be conceived of as this like ultimate mathematical tool. It's like the capstone to mathematics. And then interestingly, it's like it's in zero that we actually discover infinity. Um, and the real simple way to think about that is, you know, I say one, anything divided by zero is like indeterminate because it can be anything essentially it's infinite. Um, so it was through this conceptualization of zero that we came to understand negative numbers, which led us to imaginary numbers. If you think of like, uh, was it the square root of negative one equals I, I don't know if you guys remember that from middle school, high mm -hmm. school, that is, it's an imaginary number in that it doesn't exist. Negative one doesn't have a square root. So it's a number that exists outside of numbers. They call it an imaginary complex number. So, okay, cool. Sounds like some kind of weird made up thing, but it turns out imaginary complex numbers are very important to uh, wireless technologies, study, study of brain waves, study of all these different electromagnetic patterns. So it was, zero was kind of like the gateway to you know negative numbers, complex numbers, infinity, all these other mathematical concepts that our entire modern world is built on. You you talk about in the article how zero is both a store of value, um, like on which like higher orders of magnitude can scale, and also the idea that zero is a medium of exchange between positive and negative domains of numbers. I I, I love the, <laughs> the, the kind of way that you wrote that, but I was wondering if you wanted to expand on that a little bit. Yeah, this is where I might be reaching a bit. I'm not sure. It's still kind of rough analogizing. But yeah, I, I equate the placeholder function of zero, where it's, again, like the number 104, it's saying zero in the tens place, saying that's kind of like a store of value function in that it enables our number system to scale. It allows us to maximize mathematical meaning in the least amount of space, right? One of the numbers, for instance, I put in the piece is uh, the number 2,327, which is the end of a sum. If you spell that out in Roman numerals, so that's four characters. If you spell it out in Roman numerals, it's M-M-C-C-C-X-X-V-I-I, -I, right? So you've like got two and a half times the space necessary to convey the same meaning. So I just say zero is kind of like a store value that allows you to squeeze productivity out of the number system, sort of like money, its store value function allows you to squeeze productivity out of an economic system um, 
by by acting as this instrument of optionality. Like you can hold money and know that you have access to anything in the marketplace. And that's it's kind of like the chips on the board in the game, so to speak. And then the medium of exchange um, analogy is saying that zero serves as the gateway between positive and negative numbers. And so the analogy was, you know, in the same way that money as a medium of exchange allows us to optimize trade and innovation. Um, zero is a gateway to the negative number domain, gave us all these new innovative mathematical tools on which modernity is constructed, right? You get negative numbers, which are useful for debt, and imaginary numbers, which are useful for electromagnetic things. And um, you get into calculus, right? Every physical science in the world uses calculus. These are all dependent on zero. Um, and then actually, I didn't put it in the paper yet, but there's sort of a unit of account function there too. Where if you think of unit of account is really just simplifying exchange ratios, right? Instead of saying this house is worth eight cars or this car is worth 12 watermelons, you just say it's $10, it's $1,000, whatever. Uh, zero also gave us this ability to handle ratios much more efficiently, mathematical ratios. So in the same way money lets us handle exchange ratios more efficiently, zero let us handle um, mathematical ratios more efficiently. But again, that's all kind of rough analogy. I don't know how it really shakes out, but I'm just trying to draw these comparisons between zero and the purpose of scarcity and money. Well, you do say in the piece that uh, zero is was a one-time discovery, and you mm. say it in such a way that it was like zero is a one-time discovery of uh, you know conceptual mathematics outside of what we traditionally think of like as one, two, three, four, five that we can physically count. You can't count zero i mean you can mm -hmm. know that the absence of something is there but you you can't conceptualize zero physically and yep. in the way it seems like what you're getting at here is that bitcoin when when you're relating this back to bitcoin is that bitcoin embodies a certain discovery around absolute scarcity that cannot be physically uh, manifest uh, there's no such thing, at least that we've discovered as of yet, as absolute scarcity in the physical world. It had to have been conceptualized by this discovery. Yeah, that's, right exa track there? yeah that's exactly right. Um, I, I think that, you know, f first of all, there's a bit of a philosophical thing here. It's like, we distinguish between numerals and numbers. Numerals would be the symbols we use to represent number. Number would be kind of this abstract concept. Does it really exist outside of our minds or not? Who knows? Um, but in general, the, you know, invention of zero is kind of like the discovery of nothingness or the void in mathematics, in the framework of mathematics. That gives us all these interesting things we've talked about. And once that concept has been uncovered or discovered, it, you can't really put the genie back in the bottle or the toothpaste back in the tube, so to speak, right? It's kind of this path-dependent, one-time thing. And once the idea was released into the world, it started out-competing. You know, it underpinned a mathematical system that started out-competing other mathematical systems before it came to global dominance. You know, we all use the Hindu-Arabic Hindu number system today. It's a universal language. So in that same sense... Um, Money, like on the free market, has basically five characteristics, right? Divisibility, durability, portability, recognizability, and most importantly, scarcity. Of those five characteristics, monetary metals provided 
uh, the most superior traits, basically most, most best satisfied those five traits. And then of the monetary metals, gold was the most scarce, right? And people um, in the Bitcoin world, world articulate this in a lot of ways. Gold has the highest stock to flow ratio, has superior relative supply scarcity, um, all these things that basically caused it to outcompete all the other monetary metals and become global prime money, which it still is today, right? Central banks hold gold. They settle with finality in gold. Uh, it's the only free market money in the world. <clears throat> and, you know, due to network effects and such, it's, it's, it, it's, uh, it centralizes to one form of money. Uh, usually. So in the same way that um, it's it's as if free markets have been trying to zero in on absolute scarcity with whatever technology is available in the world historically, right? Like say it used to be seashells with a certain society that only had that for which seashells were rare or the most scarce fungible thing. Um, but as technology became more sophisticated, gold became that sort of game theoretic backstop where that no matter how hard anyone tried, no one could produce more gold. Well, I think there's a lot so, of, I mean, I, I 100% agree. I think there's a lot of, um, you know, misunderstanding surrounding this whole thing uh, with between gold and then all the monies that we do use today. And um, I've, I've talked a number of times about um, uh, George Guido Holzman's uh, ethics of money production and how he mm -hmm. discusses that um, governments through legal tender laws um, basically prop up their currencies to compete against this monetary metal mm -hmm. that you're discussing. And you had an amazing just kind of um, paragraph in here that I'd just love to read if, uh, if that's okay. It's uh, Please. a common misconception of Bitcoin is that it's just one of thousands of crypto assets in the world today. One may be forgiven for this misunderstanding as our world today is home to many national currencies. But all of these currencies began as warehouse receipts for the same thing which is monetary metals. Um, today, most of these currencies are not redeemable for gold and are instead liquid equity units in a pyramid scheme called fiat currency, which is built on mm -hmm. top of the freely determined, determined dominant money in the world, gold, which their issuers, central banks, hoard to manipulate its price and defend the value of their inferior fiat currencies. Um, I wow man I, I, I so well said it's it's this concept that i've been thinking about a long time Thanks, and I, I think you articulated it really well there yeah i uh i talked about this a little bit recently on pomp's podcast i call it monetary socialism right like we as americans pride ourselves on being free market capitalists and we'll readily tell you that supply and demand should dictate the price of anything right not not a central planning authority for any commodity any market in the world but for some reason, we have this blind spot um, when it comes to the U.S. dollar, right? We think that the you know the price of money is the interest rate, and that the price and the supply should be centrally set instead of being determined by supply and demand, yeah. like everything else. We're seeing a little bit of that right and, now, aren't we? Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. And uh, you know that's what this is what Bitcoin was designed for is sort of the the grain of sand that, uh, I don't know, I guess you could say it's like the stone in the eye of the Goliath central banker, right? It's like they've been able to violently and coercively control this market, uh, shut down any competing business, stifle innovation, 
uh, you know, put people in prison, all these, with legal tender laws, et cetera, et cetera. And all they're doing is, is suppressing free market dynamics, right? They're not letting the interest rate be naturally determined. Um, they're not letting innovation occur. So not only do we not know the price of money, because a free market, it promulgates truth, right, in terms of the price, which is what does supply and demand say something is worth, and then what is the best tech for the job? That's what free markets do. They produce things that do the best, uh, provide the best service. But in the market for money, we have stifled both of these functions through monetary socialism. And then my argument is that for the same reason, same mathematical reasons that Soviet Russia imploded, right, there's such high enforcement costs to try and control everyone and prevent them from competing, et cetera, et cetera. That is the same, for the same reasons that happened, uh, monetary socialism or central banking will implode as well. Um, and now that, you know, it, it sort of worked with gold, they accumulated enough of it to corner the market and manipulate the price and defend fiat currency. But with Bitcoin, it's just a digital, informational, unstoppable free market. So they, like, there's, they don't have any arrows in the quiver to defend themselves against Bitcoin. And it's also it's like a bearer asset, right? Exactly. Yeah. Which it has to be. It ha like, I wouldn't say it has to be, but historically it always has been, right? People want to know that if I'm holding money, I'm holding something that's self-sovereign, that it cannot be uh, deauthorized, the transaction cannot be reversed, uh, cannot be inflated. The asset that I hold is it has value as determined by the free market, not by any individual group. And that gives it the highest game theoretic value in the free market uh, space. So in that passage that Ben read, uh, you pointed out that the common misconception about Bitcoin is that it's just one of thousands of crypto assets in the world today. Um, something that your article goes into more in depth is this term that you've called path dependence. Uh, and you've said that Bitcoin is a one-time irreproducible invention. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah. So this is a, a concept that I got from my favorite author, Nassim Taleb. I tell everyone to go out and read all his books twice because he's just, he's like the Aristotle of our time, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, which interestingly, actually, zero was the reason the Aristotelian view of the world sort of collapsed, by the way. Aristotle didn't believe in zero or infinity, so that was... Um, led to his uh, the downfall of his ideas. But anyways, path dependence very simply means that the sequence of events matters as much as the events themselves. So uh, the analogy I like to use is if you take a shower and then dry yourself off, you get a very different result than if you dry yourself off first and then take a shower, right? Like the order of things matters. Um, and, and another way to say that is like, History has inertia, so that once something has happened in a certain environment and choices have been made, uh, you know, like say in a free market, people deciding to buy or sell a particular asset, that are, there comes a point where you can't go back to the beginning and reset, you know, the world to a new stage. Um, and so, like, go with Bitcoin, for instance, it was released into the world anonymously into a cryptographic chat group at a time when nothing like it existed in the world, right? It was just put out into the wild, able to grow organically and freely 
uh, people were voluntarily able to adopt it or discard it or write it off as many people did and it was you know holders decided to hold it and exchange it based on their own um, volition and then miners were able to download the software and start mining it under their own volition and it just grew organically as this free market monetary technology um, you can't repeat that organic idiosyncratic sequence of events right so I say if you tried to release new Bitcoin in the world today uh, organically it, it just doesn't work because everyone's aware we're in a world now that there's an awareness of Bitcoin so there would be a direct incentive to attack uh, this small crypto asset right with uh, comparatively lower liquidity network effects uh, chain security uh, first of all it would be noticed second of all there would be an incentive to attack it and a good simple analogy of this was Bitcoin cash right it forked off it had a much smaller community and social contract establishing its value and it's essentially collapsed against Bitcoin so I'm just making the point that Bitcoin's emergence into the world is non it's a non-repeatable event and the invention of Bitcoin represents a gateway to this discovery of absolute scarcity and money and you know even Bitcoin cash it had an absolutely scarce money supply as well but what happened its value collapsed into Bitcoin because it had weaker liquidity network effects and chain security so I, I I'm reasoning that the discovery of absolute scarcity for money can't be repeated and anything that tries to compete with it ends up collapsing into Bitcoin what would you say to these people that you see out there uh, I see them on Twitter and like YouTube comments uh, <laughs> mostly like in the in the cesspools of the internet but you see them say things like oh you know Bitcoin will never work because uh, it, it's not physically redeemable you know it's not pegged to anything now if the government creates a, a gold pegged cryptocurrency now that's what we need uh, <laughs> tell us what your thoughts on that is um... I think they've not done adequate homework because the value of gold is the energy expended to acquire it, right? Again, it was the least reproducible commodity on earth that satisfied those other monetary characteristics, divisibility, durability, portability, recognizability. So it's really not the scarcity of gold per se, it's actually the energy necessary to obtain it. And that's the same truth with Bitcoin. It is the energy necessary to obtain it that gives it its value. So another way of looking at that is in economics, commodity prices tend to converge to their marginal cost of production. So that where uh, an incremental unit of gold, for instance, say cost $1,000 to mine, the market price tends to converge to that because people will compete right up to that razor thin margin where they can make one cent off mining an ounce of gold. So if you look at it at that way, um, that's what gives gold its market value. It's kind of the, its marginal cost of production and then it's the same, same is true for Bitcoin. As its hash rate grows, the mining market becomes more competitive. It becomes more and more expensive and uh, you know, juxtaposed over its inflation rate having every four years, it becomes more and more expensive to produce an individual Bitcoin which drives a feedback loop that increases its market value. So to, to those people, I would say you just don't understand the value proposition of gold. Mm -hmm. um, and by the way, this is not 
this I I talked to a guy the other day. He works for I won't name it. It's a very large financial institution. He sells high net worth individuals gold, basically putting gold in their portfolio. He didn't know about the energy price of gold. He didn't know about the stock to flow ratio. He didn't know. He says he says he tells his clients this is the only asset you never want to own. You never want to work out because if it does, the world's falling apart. But he didn't understand any of the quantitative underpinnings of gold valuation. And this is a, a high net worth guy that sells gold to high net worth guys. So this is arguably one of those uh, dumbing down effects of fiat currency, right? We have we have suppressed Austrian economics, um, which were which is where all this wealth of knowledge comes from, and we've we've lost touch with economic reality in a lot of ways. Yeah, people just buy things because they're lindy, like stocks and and gold but yeah. they don't understand the value proposition or really even what they're doing right exactly um, you know i mean it, i i don't know <laughs> how, how much you guys want to get into the macro discussion of what we're seeing now but um today we see you know the 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 value of all real things declining against the dollar and uh you know there's a lot of uncertainty in the world today and people are holding liquid cash um, to hedge against that uncertainty and in doing that they've um, divested themselves from some stocks and real estate and, and even gold um, in some cases mm -hmm. uh, in order to um, to retain that liquid um, good which is the US dollar the globally most liquid uh, yeah. good that we that we have and in because they are forced to preserve their wealth by holding inflating assets um, when this uncertain event does come we see that um, the 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 the, the mad dash out of those assets um, has has caused the world more pain. I, I would argue than if we actually used stocks for for their intended purpose, which is to invest in business, not to preserve our wealth. Um, Absolutely, um, the the flight to safety. It's you know there's a bid for the pure optionality of cash as uncertainty in the world increases. Right. So if you think of like you're driving, and the fog sets in. Uh, you're more uncertain about what's in front of you, so you're going to slow down so you have more optionality. That slowing down is an accumulation of cash, basically. And for better or worse, right now the U.S. dollar is the most liquid instrument in the world. It's the most successful fiat currency pyramid scheme in the world. Um, and I think you will continue to see that um, in the short term where people are actually trying to just protect themselves from economic fallout, the consequences of, of whatever we're moving into, virus or uh, economic situation. And to your point, it's we've so compromised the, the first function of money, which is to store value, that you're forced out into everything else. So you get these real violent investment flows where in, when times are good, you're piling into stocks and real estate, anything but cash that's getting eroded in value. But then as soon as, um, you know, the bubble bursts, which is actually driven by the monetary policy in the first place, you have this rush back into cash. So, and again, back to the wisdom of Taleb, he says, as, as we try to suppress volatility in the short term, in terms of, you know, ma maintaining stable prices or keeping stable employment, we're just exacerbating the long-term volatility. Volatility is like potential energy, right? You can't mute it. You can defer it but you just make it exponentially worse in the long run. And I think that's all central banks are, are doing and have done. You know, I think it's really interesting watching, 
what's been going on here because this is bitcoin's first real recession right i mean this is bitcoin's mm-hmm. like time in the arena so to speak and it's funny watching some of these narratives um that that some of the shit coiners have thrown at at bitcoin and, and some of the theories crafted around bitcoin one of the ones that i remember reading particularly around the times of the block size debates and and still now somewhat uh if you ever find yourself in conversation with those types who would try to make the argument that um, satoshi never intended you know for bitcoin to be a store of value which when you when you look at it bitcoin quantitatively just obviously doesn't make any sense but they'll i've even heard someone go so far as to say that the the article headline in the genesis block um that i have uh, right there on the wall behind me chancellor on the brink of second bailout for banks I've heard the argument that that was just just so happened to be the article that Satoshi picked because it was it was relevant and topical at the time, but it, it didn't have any greater meaning behind it. Um, <laughs> which, when you look at these things, you know, in their context, that just it's just nonsense. I mean, it, it's completely stupid. Yeah, even even yeah. Robert's article has uh, the this short quote: uh, "Essentially, Bitcoin's terminal money money supply growth rate of absolute zero is the ultimate monetary shelling point." Yeah, um, yeah. About Satoshi, it's like okay. First of all, the guy—he's just a myth, a legend. He's gone. Whatever. He's the godhead of Bitcoin. So all the respect in the world to him. But his intention for Bitcoin doesn't fucking matter. Frankly, it's the free yeah. market determines what the technology will be used for. If the market all of a sudden flipped tomorrow and decided Bitcoin was going to be a ledger for beach balls, like that's what it is. It doesn't matter what Satoshi intended. But second of all, when he said it was intended to be digital cash, I think as you know, intelligent and, and amazing as this guy was, clearly he knows what cash means. Cash is not what we conceive today as the paper in our pockets. The original meaning of the word cash, I think it's the French word, comes from the French word casse, I think is how you say yeah, it. Box. And it meant, it meant money box, exactly. So in the like 19th century, cash meant a bearer asset, as in a self-sovereign, free market determined, uh, final settlement of money. So when banks settled with one another, they talked in terms of cash settlement, which usually meant physical gold transfer. So cash is not government IOUs that are good for nothing now in your pocket as far as redeemability, but it actually means free market money. Um, And that's how I interpret Satoshi's meaning of cash. Robert, why, why did you write Bitcoin is an invention that radically enhances exchange efficiency? Uh, I think that's going into the price signal distortion. Um, so again, the price of money is the interest rate, which is which occurs at the intersection of supply and demand for money. So there's a supply of money and there's a demand to borrow it. And wherever those two curves intersect is the interest rate, the natural interest rate. Um, Under a central banking model, that is not allowed to be determined by supply and demand. Instead, it is set by a boardroom, right? Uh, A governing body uh, appointed by central bankers and politicians. So in doing that, it has these perverse consequences on every other market in the world because money touches every market in the world, right? Money's one half of every transaction. So we end up with these situations where we're capitalizing projects, buying things, you know, buying more real estate than we need, buying more stocks than we need, um, trying to escape 
uh, either the ravages of inflation or being misled by the, the artificial price signal that central bankers are creating. So it leads to all these market distortions, which we call bubbles. And we think, you know, today we think that's just the normal way of things, this business cycle, this boom and bust business cycle. But in reality, you know, everything's cyclic, but to the severity, to the degree that we see it today, it is directly correlated to the expansionary monetary policy of central banks. They are driving these economic distortions. So in that sense, uh, you know, in a Bitcoin standard or Bitcoin world, you wouldn't have nearly the severity of these cycles and booms and busts. So it would dramatically increase our efficiency of exchange. Because right now, a lot of these exchanges are pointless. You're trying to just get out of the currency to protect yourself and get back in when things are bad. And it's, uh, you know, it's just another case of us humans trying to over intervene into the natural order of things. A free market's a natural organizing principle. The market needs to clear at whatever price it clears. Uh, that is what's best for the most people. And anytime we try and intervene and manipulate that, we just create these uh, disastrous consequences that we're seeing in the world today. Something that I've noticed in particular in the last 12 months or so, and, and this is probably, I'm sure there's an exception to the rule, but it seems like most of the people who saw the bubble, right, who are used to the types of people who are used to thinking about distortions in economic calculation, the Bitcoiners, maybe perhaps the gold bugs, um, so they saw this bubble coming from a mile away, right? Mm -hmm. They see what looks like a blow off top. They see what looks like massive cascade of debt default coming and everyone else is caught by the wayside. Do you think that that distortion of price signal is what causes that blindness that people seem to have? Uh, it's definitely a contributor. Uh, it runs deep, you know, and Taleb, again, he, there's no one that he rails on more than Keynesian economists, basically. <laughs> He's just saying these guys, like, they, they make all these huge, complicated mathematical proofs uh, of trying to predict an economy and determine its causality and all these things. And it's as asinine as trying to go out and predict the long-term climate, right? Like an economy is a complex system in the same way that the weather is. We can't predict mm -hmm. it over the long-term. It's unpredictable, complete. Like you just have to accept the limitations of knowledge in that domain. And so I f it feels like that because we've, you know, again, back to what the fuck happened in 1971, we've detached ourselves from economic reality such that breaking the dollars pegged to gold actually broke the uh, intellectual character of our academic institutions. Like they're just no longer in reality. They're out, you know, in Keynesian stratosphere, mathematizing all these uh, nonsensical concepts. When in fact, you know, the market for money is best served as a free market, just like every other free market. So I, I feel like there's a this big, Taleb calls them intellectuals yet idiots, IYIs. They're just, um, we've stupefied ourselves, it seems like, with these socialistic type uh, academic institutions. And I would say, you know, I got deep into this as a kid. I started reading The Economist magazine all the time. It's my favorite magazine. I read it every week. Cover to cover, loved it. Um, 
and then you know super into economics in college uh, uh, undergraduate master's degree in accounting and finance I've just always been into it but upon discovery of Austrian economics just really flipped the script on me and it's it is the two schools are Austrian economics is like the culmination of all the ancient wisdom in the world in regards to economics like all, all of human history compressed into one school called the Austrian school. And then you have Keynesian economics, on the other hand, which is basically a couple hundred year old central bank propaganda. Um, and these are the two competing bodies of knowledge in the world today. And Austrian economics uh, directly purports free market money, things like Bitcoin, and Keynesian economics uh, purports that you can just print your way out of everything and government is omnipotent effectively so something oh sorry no that's i mean it's just it that's it just trying to spell out that that's how we've stupefied ourselves that people actually believe in keynesian economics whatsoever is mind-blowing when you look at it at a fundamental level like that we're even talking about things like mmt modern monetary theory in public forums is fucking asinine we're saying the government can print as much money as they want uh as long as we don't cause inflation so it's just, I don't know, it's really, uh, it's a lot to, to be alive today and, and see how much we've disregarded the, the lessons of history. Something that I'm always trying to beat people over the head with, and I don't know why uh, I, I can't get it through to people who just don't like to think about money because uh, Keynesian theories have made the subject of money feel so arcane to people that they feel like they just can't understand and they don't even mm-hmm. want to try. Um this idea that inflation or that money creation, the velocity of money, that these theories that Keynesians use to justify uh, theft um, is a new idea or is like some sort of novel approach to um, moving money around the economy when, when these ideas are not new. You know, I mean, it's just that before Keynesian ideology was at the forefront they just didn't call it inflation they just called it theft or coin clipping yeah yeah i I mused once that the you know the princes have been debasing their coins for for quite some time but the uh advent of of the modern age the uh the real trick was just convincing us it's a good thing um so just jumping on uh this this canes bashing stuff um the idea if you talk to these people that Oh, money shouldn't be a store of value. Uh, you know, is 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 hilarious to listen to them say it's because a it's literally in the definition of money, um, but b has you know as you were uh, talking about uh, has led us to uh, a place where we are exploiting the monetary uh, characteristics of other goods, um, the moneyness of things like mm-hmm. stocks and real estates, and this is part of the distortion the. Um, the destruction of our culture and our society you know that as it, it because instead of holding cash for what it is you know money is the way that we collaborate it is the way that society scaled beyond um, bartering systems it's it's how we have gotten um, to collaborate across the world um, between people separated by languages and, and cultures and distance that we're actually working on the same things we're building different parts of the same um, device uh, when you when you're using poor money to do that to do those exchanges that it, it distorts all of that cooperation and uh, and and because we are 
you know, we spend we have all these people reading the tea leaves, trying to figure out what the Fed will do. Um, that's a waste of time that could yeah. be used for proper economic calculation or or other productive processes. So it, you can see this destruction and distortion of our society in many different ways, uh, and it's all due to the poor moneyness of the money that we use, fiat money. Absolutely, and I think a lot of that, you know, it has its roots in propaganda, frankly. Like even the term inflation, it's a euphemism. If people don't understand economics and they don't understand uh, where money came from and what it is today, inflation sounds great, right? Prices are going up, stocks going up, realist, my house is more valuable. Like this is, I think, intentionally deceptive. Yeah. Uh, these other terms, quantitative easing, right? Oh, sounds great. What, there's problems in the economy? Just put more money in it. So it's just, it's a, I, you know, I don't like to speak hyperbolically, but I find it hard not to call this the greatest con in human history. Right. I mean, they've been stealing vast swaths of our time, energy, effort, wealth, um, just by tweaking the money supply. Yeah, and we've seen trillions um, of dollars printed in um, you know, just over the past few yeah. weeks. And so that yeah. doesn't, you know, <laughs> you can create quadrillions of dollars right now, today, right? That doesn't yeah. increase the amount of people or skills right. or buildings or yes. other capital goods that we have. It's not changing how much wealth there is in society. Yeah. So what... It's more dollars chasing those things. And people get that intuitively, right? It's like, you're just making more paper that are claims on those things. You're not making more of those things when you print money. Um, I just don't... that. That very simplistic uh, education does not exist. Like I've, you know, I have a master's degree in accounting and finance. No one talked about this shit. <laughs> like in your textbooks, government is God. Just they don't suffer any opportunity costs. They can print money at will. They can uh, change laws at will. They can open and close businesses. Like it is, it's a true delusion that we're living under today. They produce risk-free returns. Risk-free returns. Another euphemism. <laughs> Someone shared in our Discord earlier today, uh, it's like an excerpt from, I, I'm not sure if it was from the Congress or from the Fed, but it was talking about how they're going to fund some of these new economic programs to prop up this just complete collapse that we're seeing. And uh, I wanted to read like this excerpt because it says, this is a money-financed fiscal program. No additional U.S. debt will be issued as a result of this program. Instead, the program will be funded directly from the Treasury using its legal authority to create money via coin seniorage, which is a statutory delegation of Congress's constitutional power of the purse. And it, it's such, it paints such a perfect example of what you're saying about the, the deception, you know, because it sounds very impressive. It's like, oh, uh, legal authority to create money via coin senior age. Well, it sounds like they know what they're doing, but what they, they don't say that they're just printing money. I mean, that, and that the, prop, the senior age is profit off of, you know, the money creation process. And on, on what you guys were just talking about um, in terms of like the, the perpetuation of the deception, you know, who are the people that you see saying silly things like um, society doesn't owe you a store of value or uh, hyperinflation is good for economies because it stops the concentration of wealth? And like these just absolute nonsensical things that you hear and see some people say, you look at their backgrounds, right? They're the closest ones to the money spigot. They're the oh, venture yeah. capitalists. They're the politicians. They're the intellectuals, the socialized intellectuals like you like you've mentioned. And of course that they have reason to perpetuate this nonsense because they're closer to the money spigot than people like me even if they don't understand yeah. it right like um it, it's just working really well for them like no no dude look it's working really well my stocks are up you know yeah yeah, right. yeah. boomers are a great example yeah. 
Yeah, the translation to all of that, right, is you have inflation, which once you understand that is it's just taxation without representation or the shadow tax or it's just an implicit tax, right? Which, by the way, was one of the founding principles of this country, right? We didn't like that Britain was taxing us without us seeing any representative good from it. So we, we forked off and started the United States, right? So inflation is taxation without representation. And taxation really is you're just paying money to this governmental body to protect you. It's a protection racket. You're trying to protect and honor property rights and make sure you can live a life peacefully. Uh, this whole economic model, I think Bitcoin calls it, calls it into question. And I brought this book up a lot on several podcasts, but if you haven't read The Sovereign Individual yet, you got to go read it. I mean, this is dual authored. These guys wrote it, wrote it in the 90s. They predicted anonymous digital cash. They predicted social media. They predicted digital securities all in the mid 90s. And um, it just proved to be astonishingly prescient. And I think we're moving into that kind of era where the nation state model, as we know it today, will not be applicable in the next 100 years. So uh, very exciting, scary, but, you know, arm yourself with knowledge. Yeah. Well, and ironically, you know, America was never, never really intended to be a nation state per se. It was more of like a republic, mm. um, you know, as a state sovereign republic. And yes. the founding fathers were so incredibly clear about how they felt about money printing and, and central banking and fought over those things. You know, those were some of the most heated political issues in, in early American mm -hmm. politics, the, the creation and then the destruction of central banks. Banking establishments um, and more usually than standing armies, I think, is Jefferson. Yeah. Right, right. And, yeah. and they were usually like when Madison chartered the central bank, it was because he couldn't fund um, defense for the United States in the war of 1812 and the quasi wars. And he, he had expected the state militias to step up, um, you know, because you always run into problems of defense when, whenever you start talking about sovereignty and sovereign individuals and, and state sovereignty. And, and we ended up with the federal bureaucratic machine that we have today because people didn't want to solve their own problems. Mm. Yeah, I think Andrew Jackson, which I'm from Tennessee originally, so I love Andrew Jackson. He was a Tennessean president. I think he knocked out one of the central bankers at one of the meetings. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And he had some quote where he's saying, the bank is trying to kill me, but I will kill the bank. I mean, we were founded on this principle of free market economics, and central banking is antithetical to that. So there were three attempts, I believe, in the U.S. before it finally stuck with the Federal Reserve. And, um, you know, like our civilization is founded on this idea that sovereignty inheres in the individual, right? And, you know, uh, we, the individual is essentially the cornerstone of the state, but we have gotten so far away from that specifically through fiat currency, which allows this mechanism for siphoning wealth and sovereignty um, from people and from gold hoards into the institutional structure. And that's what we have today is this bloated federal government, top heavy, inefficient. Um, and that's, you know, they're out there today. What we printed 1.5 trillion since the virus issue started. It looks like we're going to print another 5 trillion in short order. They're plundering the wealth of society by printing money. You're just creating more dollars that few people have access to. They get to claim the assets 
that those dollars are worth before they enter broader circulation and become diluted via inflation. So it's this, it's a mechanism for theft. And it just, I don't think, holds up in a world where people, um, you know, they're getting torn apart by this and awareness of it is spreading rapidly, um, you know, largely through the study of, of Bitcoin and Austrian economics. There's finally an alternative. Yeah. Thank you, Satoshi. Yeah, thanks, man. Well, Robert, is there anything else uh, you want to hit on? Any other topics you'd like to get into? Uh, yeah, I think the macro situation right now is really staggering. Um, you know, we're recording this in late March. I guess it was March 12th. That was Black Thursday, I think. Markets contracted 30%. Trading was halted. Um, Bitcoin, which was already at a cyclic low point around mid, mid sevens, I think, was knocked down to mid fours overnight. Um, you know, this is one of the fastest financial crashes in history. This was faster than the Lehman crisis. Uh, and under a month, all the major indices were down 30%. Sectors like oil and travel were down as much as 80%, which is just crazy, crazy fast. Um, and declines like this, we haven't seen since the 1929 crash, which, as we know, preceded the Great Depression. So we're in really scary times um, for most people. And, you know, the COVID-19 coronavirus has been the catalyst to all of this. But what it's really done is just, in my opinion, expose these latent fragilities in the financial system. I mean... It's not like the virus broke the economy. I mean, these, these hidden risks have been accumulating and accumulating over time. Once there was a panic, um, we just saw these things come to the surface really quickly. And not to say that this virus isn't scary because, you know, it is. it has been declared a global pandemic. Some experts are equating it to the Spanish flu, which, you know, killed, I think, somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 to 100 million people. Um, and pandemics like these they've always caused severe recessions. We had Russian flu in the late 1800s. We had the Asian flu in the 1950s. We had the Hong Kong flu in the late 60s. They always cause economic recessions. Um, so I think it's it's just a, it's a scary time. And I think uh, Raul Powell is a really, really smart macro guy that I follow. I think he's in all Bitcoin and cash right now. Yep. You know, he's very bearish on where we're headed. So he finally got out of those bonds. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure he made a killing, though. Yeah. Uh, and we talked a little bit earlier about the suppression of volatility and how that just leads to exacerbated volatility in the long term. I think a good analogy for this I read recently is if you look at um, forest fires and you look look at California which is in the United States, and you look at Baja, California, which is in Mexico. It's actually a Mexican state. They have a similar climate, similar vegetation, and similar topology. But California in the U.S., we intervene frequently to fight these fires of all sizes. So we mitigate these small natural fires. Whereas in Baja, California, the Mexican state, there's much less intervention overall. So as a result, California has 
much fewer many much fewer fires, but they're much larger and more devastating. Whereas Baja California has a lot more fires, but they're less destructive overall. And so the lesson there for markets is that, you know, suppressing these small risks only concentrates them into exponentially larger ones that are inevitably realized over time. And so in the analogy of uh, the forest fires, this really matters because when those unnaturally large fires burn, they burn uh, hotter than they would otherwise, and they can actually burn away topsoil and prevent regrowth. Whereas like naturally small fires, they actually refresh the ecology over time. So it just, I think that's a really apt analogy for what we're doing in the economy. We're trying to like fight these little fires, like don't let there be unemployment here, no, no inflation, no bankruptcies, you know, too big to fail this. And you're just brushing it under the rug until eventually it just explodes massively. And I don't know if this is the explosion or it's still to come, right? If we're still printing our way towards it. But it, yeah. is, it is inevitable. Yeah. And we've got to learn to just stop intervening in natural systems at some point and let nature do its thing. You can see this empirically well, if you look at um, a really long-term uh, chart that has, like, recessions on it. Like, there's, we have one on the what the fuck happened in 1971 um, that has the uh, budgets, uh, deficits, and surpluses. But it has those gray lines that represent the recessions. And uh, obviously on that chart, I've marked, you know, where we had kind of more fiat money and more um, uh, more gold standard money. And if you can you can actually see that, you know, under the uh, the, the sounder money monetary standards, you can see that there's more of these recessions, but they're much smaller. And then if you look on the other mm -hmm. ones, you can see they're farther apart, but they're much bigger. Yep. Um, so empirically, you can actually really see that coming true. And uh, if you want to read... Um, a great piece on the explanation of why you do need these small fires in the economy every once in a while. Deflation and liberty um, is an amazing read. It talks about how you know when businesses fail, um, you know that the those those buildings and those capital assets and all they they move on to um, better entrepreneurs that can better you know steward those uh, resources yeah. rather than. Uh, you know what we see today where they're just propped up on more debt and the zombie economy and that these terrible entrepreneurs that should be failing keep going and going and going absolutely even in the fed zone models you know you look historically uh, at, at time periods of extremely low unemployment tend to be recession indicators in the following six to 12 months and like i i tweeted this like almost 12 months to the day like kudlow said that there was no recession in sight and i was like really because i'm looking at the st louis fred's website right now and i see both a bond curve inversion and low unemployment so mm -hmm. i'm seeing a recession and i at that point i was telling everybody to get out of equities and they thought i was crazy because we're at the top of a bull market mm -hmm. and it's like you know, the, if, if the Fed zone indicators are saying that there's a recession coming, you know, there, there really isn't a whole lot of excuse, um, I think. And, and you keep hearing people say this narrative, like, at least I hear it, I hear it in Meatspace. I don't hear it in, in Bitcoin Twitter, but you keep hearing like, oh, in a few weeks when things go back to normal. Mm -hmm. um, and, and you have to wonder, like, central banks have to be coming up on their last leg here. And is this the last hurrah? Do we have another 10 years of this thing? I don't know. I really don't. I mean, they're yeah. trying to stop a massive cascade of debt default right now. And if, if this thing runs its course, like people are going to have to learn what $220 trillion in unfunded liabilities means. Absolutely. That cascade is a, a really apt analogy, too. There, was, there were studies done in the 80s where scientists basically determined that avalanches, they obeyed a power law. So the frequency of avalanches was inversely proportional to their size. 
So kind of like the forest fires, the less frequent they are, the more catastrophic they become. Um, so in that in that sense, I think the COVID-19 was kind of like the gunshot, if you will, that triggered this financial avalanche uh, or spark that's causing the, the economic conflagration. Um, but again, I think getting back to zero, actually, it's like as a result of this, we now have 0% uh, interest rates. We have 0% capital reserve requirements in banks. Uh, we still have 0% central banker accountability and skin in the game. That's just a constant throughout monetary socialism. And I tweeted this the other day. I think the only answer to all of that is the only money in history that has a 0% terminal inflation rate, which is Bitcoin. I mean, it just it puts a lid on all this bullshit once and for all. Um, it's going to take a long time to transition. Uh, you know, again, the discovery of the number zero was not uh, welcomed with open arms into Europe, let's say. They resisted it. They um, It led to, again, that move, movement away from the earth as the center of the universe to the heliocentric model of the universe. You know, the church burned people for that, right? They, they forbade books. They did... Uh, it started the, the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation, all these things that led to the ultimate demise of the church as the dominant institution in the world, but the transition was bloody, right? They really held on to power as much as they could. And I think, that, you know, the central bank today is the, the Catholic church uh, of years past, and it's, it's going to implode, it's going to lose its hold on humanity, but the transition is not going to be pretty. So be smart. Yeah, and, and that is to say Bitcoiners certainly don't want it to go this way. I mean, I think we would have all rather just had a, a hyper Bitcoinization happen in the good times and everyone's like, well, this is better. Let's just do this. Um, but the reality is that it seems to be that that uh, time has run out for that. Yeah, agreed. Well, uh, Robert, thank you so much for joining us. You got any parting thoughts for the listeners? Um. No, I, I, uh, I'm a very active on Twitter. My last name is Breedlove. That's B-R-E-E-D-L-O-V-E. Uh, my Twitter handle is Breedlove22. And then I'm, I write on Medium as well, so I can be found there. And I hope to get this piece uh, edited and finished up in the next three or four days. So hope you guys enjoy it. I hope the audience does as well. Sure. Yeah. And we're going to put a link to um, where you guys can find Robert and also his writing that we discussed in this episode down in the show notes. So make sure and check that out and follow him on Twitter. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening. I hope that you enjoyed the discussion that Ben and I had with Robert. Don't forget that if you have any questions, you can reach out to me on Twitter at HeavilyArmedC, or you can reach out to Ben at MrCoolBP. We're both more than happy to have discussions with you about pretty much anything related to economics or money or Bitcoin or anything you want to talk about. If you just want to chat, feel free to hit us up. Both of us keep our DMs open. If you have questions specifically about the show or you want to reach out with an interview request, you you can email bitcoinechochamber at gmail.com. You can also find all of our episodes at bitcoinechochamber.com. Don't forget to follow Robert Breedlove on Twitter and check out all of his awesome work. Ben and I are hoping to do some WTF Happened in 1971 episodes on some, uh, like some guest appearances on other shows here sometime soon. 
So look forward to that. Ben and I have a lot of really interesting retrospective discussion on some of the lessons that we've learned from the website and the conversations that it's generated around the internet. So I'll make sure to share those in all of my appropriate feeds when they go live. Otherwise, thanks for listening, guys, and I will see you in the next one.